Welcome to Milkmaid's Podcast, the unconventional homesteading podcast. I'm Stephanie from Wyoming. And I'm Tara from Montana. Join us each week as we take a deep dive into an inclusive homesteading topic from canning, dairy animals, gardening, animal husbandry, and everything in between. Hey, Tara. Hey, I bought frogs today. <laughs> As one does at the drugstore. At the drugstore. That's my favorite part. They're just chilling at the drugstore. I mean, how far? It's like an hour and a half to even a pet store there. Right. So they have to sell them at the drugstore. It makes complete sense. Pop on into the drugstore. Right. Like we need more animals to be in charge of, but they're so adorable. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. (laughs) I like how you phrased it. Tara just told me about this. Like this happened today, right? Right before. Right. She sends me a message. She's like, so I went to the drugstore and I got frogs because they were only so much money. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're cheap frogs. <laughs> to be fair, like, I mean, I sound a little judgy there. And it is fun to judge other people for doing the exact same stuff that you do. But I almost bought a whole bunch of cows because they were cheap the other day. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> cows, frogs. What's the difference? Well, frogs. Yeah, frogs. <laughs> Can you tell them about the club? Oh, <laughs> It comes with a biome, and then also it's like a kit, and it comes with a year's supply of food, and there's a club. Like, you sign up online that you purchase this biome, and you get to join a club, and you get to print off a calendar and everything. It's really cool. I'm all about this frog life now. Like, I'm 100% dead. This is how you know I have ADHD, because, like, this morning I was all obsessed about our topic for today. Right. And I've completely moved on to frogs. Like, that's now not interesting to me anymore. All of a sudden, the episode's about frogs. <laughs> it's not really, but maybe Mainly next week. Mainly about how small-town America is carrying the entire tank, plants, rocks, water, frogs, right. food. It's a biome, yes. And club. It's a club. A whole Comes ass with a club. club. And I'm not signing my kids up. No, this is all me. <laughs> This is all me. I'm going to be in this forum with 10-year-old kids talking about these frogs. <laughs> and, you know, to each their own. Yep. Frog club. So we'll be checking back in on that. <laughs> Just I'm sure case. everybody tuned in to hear about frogs. frogs. We should title the episode, like, something about frogs. People right. will be so confused. Okay, so welcome to October. Finally. Spooky season. Finally. Finally. Who does our shout out go to this week? So remember we had our canning episode where we got to talk about canning and then you got super stoked about community canneries. Yes. I love that idea. The whole concept. I love it too. So we had a friend, Tracy at Featherbeard Farms. Hi, Tracy. Hey, Tracy. And she reached out to let us know that there is a community cannery next to her. It's called TCCAA Community Cannery out of Riverdale, Virginia. Love it. The really cool thing about this, like we mentioned in our canning episode, is that these are places that you can essentially check out. Think of like a library book, kind of like that, except you go there. Yeah, you go there with your food. And then you can rent it to can your vegetables or fruits or soups, meat, whatever. Right. They have the whole facility set up to do water bath canning or pressure canning. You can call and reserve a spot ahead, and they open up this amazing building and you can use all of their equipment and they'll even get there and teach you how to use it, which is super important. They are really encouraging to locals to preserve their own food and put the control back in the consumer's hands. So if you grow all these veggies, but you have no idea where to start as far as like canning 
yourself this is you don't listen to our podcast right (laughs) or you just want somebody to help you with it like that's awesome if you're a hands-on learner go ahead yeah and and like I mean you can listen to things and read books but like even you know everybody benefits from watching somebody do it yeah especially for pressure canning because people get so intimidated by it right which don't be intimidated listen to our episode but yeah yeah this is a really great way to do it yeah so they do ask that you pre-wash your fruits and veggies ahead of time and then you can come in and get to work what I love about their website is that they have a little short video and it kind of lets you know what they're all about. And they're just really phenomenal about making it accessible to everyone. Not only do they encourage you to do it, but they can assist you. And this is not all that the TCCAA op- offers. They really want to empower the people in their community and create a community in which everyone is thriving. So that means food independence and food security is a really That's big huge. one. Yeah. What I love about this is that you can donate to their cause. They are a nonprofit 501c3, and we will have a link to them in our show notes. Boom. Yeah, I love these places. I think that, like, if I ever decided to take a break from farming and do something farming adjacent, this is, like, way up my alley. A community a cannery. Like this. Yeah. Yeah, or just, like, a spot that people can learn. Or, like, yeah, you could, you know, on this side of the building's canners and everything set up to do that. And on that side, we've got dehydrator number one through eight and you can sign up to check one out or that would be awesome freeze dryers or whatever you know hold classes and I just think like like the concept of like a what they call them like freedom gardens yeah during during the old war times that we always the talk old about war times <laughs> the war times it's to me it's like the same concept right because you can grow all the food you want but if you don't pr- know how to preserve it or whatever but the whole thing on like the community scale is really cool to me yeah I just find it find it very cool. So anyways, I love that. If you want to ask us a question or um, send us a shout out, reach out to us at milkmaidspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us at milkmaidspodcast on Facebook or Instagram as well. We still have some stickers left. So if you participated in the um, Preserve with Milkmaids challenge with us this summer, uh, send us a message with your stuff. Yeah. Send us your your, uh, information where you want that mailed and one of us will mail it to you. I sent out a whole bunch yesterday. Boom. Yes. Love it. Yeah, it was super fun for everybody to participate and little cute stickers. Yeah. Are always fun. So what's your biggest success this summer, Stephanie? Staying alive. Staying alive. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That counts. I'm counting it. (laughs) Uh, You know, like it's, I don't, the cow was a big thing. Getting the milking machine up and running and confident in it. That was huge. Mm Mm-hmm. I've had a couple of things that I would be like, this was awesome. Uh, that was one of them. The other, I, I mean, I've mentioned this, right? Like I'm pregnant, but all the way through during planting season and the first, well, almost all of the summer, I was first trimester pregnant and really quite sick and really not, not up to my normal self, right? Right, so definitely. My, I got my garden in, which I about killed myself doing. Right. But it really was generally ignored past then (laughs) it is there's weeds everywhere and by ignored I mean I like I did my best but man I was tired and sick and whatever and I've had points where I've been really down on myself for not having it look the way I usually like it to look Mm -hmm. but like the damn thing produced amazing it did this year so it's like I think that was like a big thing for me is like as cheesy as it is is like a metaphor for how sometimes doing your best is good like right. that's enough. Yeah. You know? Um, so it was like a good lesson, I think, to learn this summer for a classic overachiever. What was your biggest success this summer? 
I would have to say just supplying the meat for my family. Yeah. Uh, so we've supplied 100% all of our own meat for the family. All of our freezers are full. And I'm talking like all the freezers. Mm-hmm. Big giant freezer, little freezer, and then two freezers connected to fridges. So. Right. Yeah. That's been our biggest success. And Which usually, is huge. Yeah. We usually do produce a lot of our own meat, but it's never been to where all of the freezers are full. Yeah. So like it's all, it's a nice, it's a double-edged sword because you have no room to put anything else in and it's hunting season. So, but what are you going to do about that? Doug said, if he gets something, he loves hunting. Like that's what he lives for. So he said, if he gets something, he's going to buy another freezer, which I'm not opposed to. I would love to have more freezers because. Do you have resources there to just go buy one? What do you mean? For a long time. I'm not sure it's a hundred percent better, at least in our area, but like there's a long month wait a long oh. months wait <laughs> right for freezers a lot of good grammar in there long yeah months. for freezers yeah so there's actually a ton for sale as like as far as you craigslist goes oh 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 good yeah which is kind yeah. of scary like buying anything you never know it's gonna work fine but we've done that yeah a couple of times with freezers so yeah if we have to we'll just go that route yeah we did actually we did too our big one mm-hmm. we got that for like a hundred bucks we're like there's no way this thing works <laughs> right and then surprise Which we were gonna store grain in it or something if it didn't work you know mm-hmm. but yeah it's fantastic freezer right boom well i think that's awesome that you guys have all of your food i got worried about it too like just you hear about yeah. horror stories about freezers shutting off or whatever i know so i got an alarm for mine and that gives yeah. me a lot of peace of mind yeah and yours is cool because it goes to your phone right yeah it does yeah. Ours are little, like, they still work, but they do this, like, beep. So you have to be in the house. Yeah. And then our freezers, for the most part, are downstairs. So good news is I spend all of my time in the kitchen. Right. But, like, you've got, it wouldn't be just anywhere in the house that you could hear them going right. off. All right. So, well, what's going on in your homestead this week? So as far as, like, failures, I guess, I didn't get that many tomatoes this year. Did I, you have green tomatoes on the plant or just none at all? Yes, but here's the thing. I just don't want to. I don't want to deal with it. Dude, I said no this year too, because last year you couldn't even walk through my dining room, which is imperative to get from the outdoors to the rest of the house. You have to walk through the dining room. Right. There was like pumpkins stacked up. There was entire pepper plants, the whole table with the leaves in it filled with green tomatoes. Yeah. And it was like that for weeks. I can't live like that. Yeah. No, I get it. So you're not wrong. Right. I was like, you know what? We're just going to scratch having any tomato type situations. For the record, if you are in a situation where you're wherever you live and you're about to freeze, if you have green tomatoes, A, there's a lot of things you can actually make with green tomatoes. Look up those recipes. But if you want them to get red, you can bring them inside. Yeah. Just put them somewhere on a counter where it gets a little bit of sun and they will eventually turn red. Just the other option. Yeah. It can take forever depending on where they're at in the process. The other option that people will argue is the better option, if you have the space, is to pull the whole plant yeah. and hang it upside down. Right. Which, like, if you have the space, great. But so that's, yes, that's what we're talking about with the tomatoes. Yeah. And then what else? Oh, we dug up all the potatoes and carrots. I already mentioned that. But I'm trying this new thing where I put the potatoes in a cooler yeah. for the most part. Like, the perfect potatoes, all of them went in the cooler, and they're going to go under my house. Yeah. So I'm hoping that will work. There's no moisture in there. I'm making sure that it's really dry before I put it down there. And I think mm-hmm. because our the crawl space under our house stays pretty consistent temperature, it'll do all right. 
Yeah, the temperature and the darkness are bomb diggity. I'd right. just be curious about the airflow if that's necessary or not. Yeah, I saw it on Pinterest, so who's it's a to good say? Experiment. Right. Yeah. We'll we'll try yeah. it. We'll keep you posted on the frogs and the potato. Are we starting a list? We <laughs> need a things. list. Yeah. Right. At the top of the episode. Yeah. And then lastly, Moira's done with her shots. She's looking a lot better. She's still slightly limping. However, like she's running away from me, which is kind of what you want after you give an animal shots that many times. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, the second one, if they're not cooking it away from you, yeah. you're really feeling sick. Yeah. And I've had that happen before, but Moira's doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then also, this is really interesting to me because it's been a long time since I've had a pig with a hematoma. And the first time I had a pig with a hematoma, it was years ago on their ear it's from trauma yeah it's just just a a blood-filled sack yeah they get it on their ears a lot it's pretty common with piglets because they're awful and they fight for a teat or fight over food even though there's like 20 buckets they'll fight over the same thing right pigs are special that way it's what they do it's what they do so one has a hematoma and i was reading up like what's the best process to do for this and they did a study and they had one control group and then one group where they did nothing to the ear, one group where they drained the ear, and then one group where they drained the ear and gave antibiotics. And the group that came out the best was the one where they just left the hematomas completely alone. So if you have a pig with a hematoma on their ear, just leave it is the best option. Yeah. And sometimes they can burst on their own because it's just like so tight. It's easy to puncture. And if that happens, you should drain it in a like lower spot and then also give antibiotics. So that is the best advice for hematomas on the ears for now. We've had a lot of TED Talks inside of our right. Right. <laughs> update. What about you? What's going on your farm? My butter churn arrived. Remember I told yes. you I was getting a butter churn? Yes. It's still in the box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't even opened it. Right. Because busy. It's been crazy. And then also I'm like, I don't know what. I had a really bad attitude about butter. On previous lactations, like a really bad attitude yeah, you about did. butter. But also you're calf sharing then too. So, I mean, you have jerseys, but. Calf sharing and um, I just didn't have the right equipment. And so, right. yeah, so it wasn't a lot of butter to even deal with before. So frequently I'd be like, forget it, it's not worth it. Right. right? But I've got a lot of flipping cream, like mm-hmm. a lot of cream right. right now. So I'm like, you know what? I need to get myself set up to where I can handle butter and it not send me through the roof because for whatever reason, it's like a trigger for me. The other thing that I've always just kind of been a little bit peeved about with homemade butter, like, and this is such a stupid convenience, but like, this is what we have, right? You go to the store, you buy butter and it has the little measurements, right? Yeah. And I bake so much that it's like, I want to know what those measurements are. And so anyways, when you make your own butter, that becomes the deal. Then you got to like thaw it out, measure it out the yeah. right way. So anyhow, I bought my ass a butter bowl. A butter bowl. <laughs> it's not going well. Butter mold. A butter mold. <laughs> Say it fast three times. I wasn't even going that fast. <laughs> a butter mold. So it has the markings already on it. I'm really excited to use it if I ever get the dang thing out of the box. We'll see. Yeah. Hopefully we'll there'll see. be a review on that next week. Yeah, we'll update you that with that. The butter bold. And the butter bowls. <laughs> the frogs. <laughs> Everybody can't wait. So we also made um, farmhouse cheddar this week, which is, uh, it's a hard cheese. It's a yeah. hard cheddar. It's just like a less aged one, more forgiving one. Anyhow, and Brian got the cheese fridge together. So he waxed that thing of cheese last night, which is pretty cool. That was the yeah, first time we waxed really cheese. Yeah, it looks really pretty. It looks You have to beautiful. post a picture. Yeah. So we have now two months raw milk 
should go two months on. So two yeah. months. Yeah. And, and we will be updating about that as well. Right. Because you didn't <laughs> you didn't pasteurize it, right? I did not. No. You can do farmhouse cheddar a little faster if you right. do But you want the good but... bacteria to fight off anything bad and that two months will get right. it has to be age sixty days in order for that to fight off. That's why Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So anyhow, and then speaking of dairy, I've just been making all of the dairy things. Like and I'm getting back into the swing of it with the yogurt, buttermilk, sour cream cream cheese yeah I've made dulce de leche like as a permanent staple in my household apparently <laughs> as well so you know and I've had milk for a while and I didn't even think of dulce de leche until you mentioned it and I'm like wow <laughs> we have a ton of apples that our neighbor gave us so I yeah. really need to get on that I was gonna say that's what made me do it probably immediately was because apples mm-hmm. because apples. apples I just made this apple spice cake over the weekend yeah it I was beautiful cakes. so pretty but I did a dulce de leche drip on oh, the top yeah. of it. So I didn't pretty. even realize that was from your dulce de leche. Yeah. So it made it even better. Yeah. And it's buttercream from mm-hmm. our butter. Dang. And then heavy cream in that. And then the cake itself had yogurt in it. Dang. See, this is what I love about having a milk cow. Right. Or just, I mean, the goats work too. Having your own milk is that so many products you can make and put in things. And I don't know. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. We've been doing a ton of preserving still. It's almost, it's almost done. We're almost there. But the big freeze of that happened here too. I think it happened like most of the country, yeah. at least up where we are. Everybody got everything out of their garden. So I've just been like the dehydrator's been running nonstop. Anyhow, so it's just been a been a last final push. But I am doing it to myself because I just went and bought a box of pears, the last box of pears right. they had. Yeah. For the season. So but that, I love canned pears. It's really unreasonable. <laughs> Much I love canned pears in the winter. So I've got pears. I've got a couple boxes of tomatoes, the pumpkins to do something with, a wagon of corn and zucchini <laughs> in my mudroom, a literal wagon. <laughs> and then apples are coming. Maybe even this weekend. Might be mm-hmm. next week sometime. So after apples though, it's done. That's it. It's done. Yes. So we're almost there. It sounds like a lot, but at the same time, it's not. Relating to neither one of our weeks. Nothing. Except maybe the frogs. I don't know. Right, frogs. <laughs> Speaking of frogs, have you heard of poisonous plants? We're going to talk about poisonous plants today. It's our main topic for the week because, well, we had something else scheduled, but we literally just made the schedule for season two and we're already going off track. It's true. It's true. Well, that one topic we had turned out to be a flop. We thought it was going to be really cool. And then we started researching it and we we're like, oh, Okay. That's not that cool. It's actually kind of crummy. But you know what's not crummy? <laughs> Poisonous plants. Poisonous plants. Spooky <laughs> It's a great way to start it. Really. <laughs> I love it. I love it too. So what is a plant? And I should let you know right off the top of the episode I got almost all of my research from this book. It's called Plants That Kill, A Natural History of the World's Most Poisonous Plants by Elizabeth A. Doncy and Sunny Larson. This book is like one of my favorites. It's one that I always pick up and look at and I find something interesting to read, just like a little history tidbit. I love it. It's a cool book. Yeah. If you like things like this, definitely give this book a look. Book a look. Book a look. (laughs) I bought it and I actually got it at a secondhand bookstore for really cheap, but I did see it on Amazon and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. You know what it's like says a lot about our personalities, I think, is that a lot of our episodes, like we can market this as a book review podcast. Right. Honestly. For obscure books. Right. But you and I both, we always like go to books and then Google. Yeah. You know? Right. I need that hard copy. Yeah. Especially for like 
encyclopedia type stuff. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. you're wanting to flip back and forth and I love stumble it. upon. Sometimes you don't know what to Google. Right. You know? Right. And then books like or tell you like, hey, dumbass, here's the question <laughs> you should have thought about. You're like, oh, Yes, yes, yes. Right. Definitely this book. So we need to talk about what a plant is. Essentially, we all see them as like green immobile things that use photosynthesis, photosynthesis to make oxygen. This is not like special and unique to plants, though. Did you know that bacteria can also produce oxygen? Yeah. So you can't just say, well, they're green things that make oxygen. There's a whole bunch of things that do that. Right. So there are also plants that live as parasites on other plants and essentially rely on that plant or other fungi for nutrients. I love me a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, especially in plants because mm-hmm. a lot of people have no idea that that is I a know. thing. It's like, to me, yeah, that's like the coolest evolutionary aspect. Right. right. It's when things grow up together and learn how to help each other. <laughs> or <laughs> hinder each other. Right. Right. So the biggest difference between plant and animals is the cell wall. That is found on plant cells, but there is no cell wall found on animal cells. So our cells don't have a cell wall is essentially the difference. They are unique in the fact that plant cells have walls that are made up of carbohydrates, the most common being cellulose. Now let's get to poisonous plants. Plants cannot simply run away from a predator, like an animal that wants to eat it. Technically, it would be an herbivore. So plants have to evolve and adapt in order to survive. Some plants use physical defenses, such as a cactus. You know mm-hmm. a cactus has spines on them to prevent being eaten by certain animals. That. Yes, yes, right. yes, yes. Some plants have stinging hairs or really, really woody stems. Others, like we'll talk about today, rely on specific chemical cocktails that is toxic to some herbivores or other infectious organisms. It should be noted that although some plants can be toxic to certain animals or even humans, other animals may not even be affected or might even use a chemical compounds to protect themselves, which is really fascinating. It's a whole other unique topic. Right. <laughs> so let's get into our top five poisonous plants. And we stuck our list is all plants that kind of exist around us. Right. We didn't do any like jungle plants. No, although I, I could. You know, we'll do that at some point because that's fun too. But And I think most of the plants that we talk about are pretty nationwide. Yeah, yes. And a lot of these have been introduced, so they're not actually native plants. Yeah. Let's start off with henbane. This is a foul-smelling plant covered in, like, sticky, sticky hairs. The fruit resembles, I'm going to say it, it looks like a nutsack. It really does look like a nutsack. It's like a column of nutsacks. It really does. If you are unaware what uh, henbane... <laughs> you were going to say nutsack <laughs> If you are unaware Do not Google that. If you want to know what a nut sack looks like, look up the fruit of henbane, <laughs> and that'll give you the visualization that you need. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this has been the rockiest episode we've ever done. But henbane releases a lot, a lot of seeds. They so have like many. a pale, pale yellow flower, and in the middle, it's like a really, really deep purple. I actually, unco- unpopular opinion. What? I think they're one of the most beautiful flowers. No, that's actually a very popular opinion. Okay. Yeah. A lot they're of people so think they're beautiful. They're so pretty. Right. I take pictures of them every year. Right. Yeah. It's like, why? What are you doing? <laughs> See, and that's I'm like, the thing. they have to die, but they're so pretty. Right. A lot of these plants are gorgeous. These yeah. angios, they're most all angiosperms. And angiosperms are like evolved to be absolutely beautiful. Right. So the more you know, I guess. 
<laughs> right. So they have purple on the inside of these yellow flowers and long stalks and bunches of green leaves. It's a broadleaf plant. It does affect horses and cattle, but it doesn't seem to affect goats and sheep. So it spreads from May to September. It's a very invasive species in the U.S. Some places it's more invasive than others. So what makes henbane poisonous? Henbane contains tropane alkaloids, which are associated with deadly nightshades, which are also, fun fact, in the potato family. Yeah, potato and peppers are all nightshades as well. Right. That's why you don't munch potato leaves. No, they're super poisonous. Yeah. Henbane is obviously poisonous, but the chemical scopolamine can be extracted from the plant and be used for medicinal purposes. Today, they mostly use it for like seasickness and drying up saliva. (laughs) But back in the 1900s, they were all about the henbane for medicinal purposes. Yeah. It had a much wider application in medicine. Like this is the time when they're like, I don't know what's wrong with you, but let's do some cocaine about it. You know? Right. (laughs) Right. Let's do some cocaine about it. Right. You got ghosts in your blood, man. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) So they were not really good at the whole medicinal thing. So they just were like, you know what? Let's apply everything we have. In the 1900s, there was this guy, a self-proclaimed Dr. Crippen. He bought hyoscine hydrobromide from a pharmacy and he poisoned his wife and then claimed that she returned to the U.S. and that he needed the medication for other purposes because he's a self-proclaimed doctor. You could do right. that back then. But it was later confirmed that he did in fact murder his wife with this. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Wow. And Henbane was a go-to for Shakespeare. He used it as a means of death for several different plays. I believe one of them was um, Macbeth. Macbeth, yep. This is poisonous to humans and livestock, so you just need to be really careful with it. And if it is ingested, it can cause headache, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, convulsions, and coma. However, most animals will avoid eating it if they're well-fed. Except for my goats. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. They do get poisoned by it sometimes, huh? Well, it doesn't affect goats the same way, right? Like you just mentioned. Like it doesn't, it's not as bad for goats. But the problem is, is like henbane's notorious for growing in like disturbed land. Yeah. Right. And my one of my hay suppliers, even they're having the same problem that we did was that like they had established hay fields that they decided, you know what, we're going to plant something different in this spot. And so they did. They tilled and planted. Right. And like they said, it was littered with henbane, Oh, which boy. is like there hasn't been a henbane on this property in however many years. Right. You know, they'd own the property forever. But those things just sit in the soil. And once the soil's disrupted, they're like, boom, baby. Yeah, I'm back here. So anyhow, we, I mean, like, I think I've said this before, we had our whole property was tilled and then monoculture barley when Mm -hmm. we bought it. So, and it had been that way for decades. So it's taken a long time to get it to pasture other than we still have maybe a third of our property that is not pastured. It's just kind of, it was tilled dry lotted and now some things are coming up in it. Yeah. But the whole damn thing, that horse pasture, you know where I'm, you know where I'm talking about. This is the only, it only matters to you, but I mean, there was like 12 henbane a square foot. It was, it was <laughs> awful. It was like pure henbane. And we were idiots and we had just moved here because it doesn't really grow where we were in Colorado. And we had no idea that it was poisonous or even what it was. Yeah. The neighbor's like, hi, so um, <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> You're like, oh. <laughs> okay, cool. I just thought they were really pretty. But yeah, so anyhow, the long and the short of this whole story is, is that we've been working on the henbane for a long time now right trying to get it under control but it takes a very when you have that many it takes a very long time to get ahead of it mm-hmm. and so we have little patches where they'll the henbane will still come up and the goats like beeline their asses over there right and we'll yeah. strip it 
They right. like all that's left is this like stalk in the middle. They right. strip it all the way down. But the worst thing, and it only seems to affect one of my goats, Gracie. Mm-hmm. The rest of them will be out there with her, but she'll just have some diarrhea and then she's over it like right. within twelve hours. It's amazing. That. Yeah, so I don't know. Those goats are crazy, man. Goats are weird. They are. Goats are weird. So the next one is Larkspur. So there's two main types of Larkspur, a low Larkspur and a tall Larkspur. And both of these are very common landscaping plants because they're beautiful. Right. They really I are beautiful. That's like the craziest thing to me is when land like poisonous plants are landscaping. Oh, tons of them. Tons of them are. They typically have like a trumpet-like flower. It's usually purple in the wild, but if you're doing them in your garden, you can get them in a lot of different colors. Yeah. But it does vary by species. They are native here, and they're also broadleaf plants. And the reason we're telling you the type there is because that affects if you're going to spray Mm -hmm. for them, which we'll talk about at the end. But between the two of them, so low larkspur and tall larkspur, they kind of grow in different places. But between the two of them, they cover about every single terrain that you can imagine. Low larkspur tends to like more of the plains, dry, grassy type places. Yeah, prairie type areas. Yeah, and tall larkspur likes more moist, mountainous areas. So they affect cattle mostly. It rarely affects horses and sheep, but it does sometimes, especially in amounts. Um, Again, goats seem to be just fine. Like, this is great. Goats are sort of invincible. Which is potential, it's funny because like a goat will pick through alfalfa and only eat like a third of it. I know. You know, the rest is icky, but mm-hmm. they'll eat literally all this bad stuff. So all of the plant is poisonous, especially so in the new growth and seeds. So because the new growth and seeds are the ones that are the problem, frequently spring and summer are the issues when it when poisoning would be taking place. It's definitely the most toxic right at the flowering stage yeah. though and declines significantly after the seed drops. So one thing to watch out for is this one is toxic um, in the fresh or dried version. So you don't want it to get in your hay either. Yeah. That's a big thing if, in fact, that's where like a significant portion of poisoning happens Mm -hmm. is because the animals don't pick through them when it's in the hay because they can't tell it. Right. Anyhow. So the problem with Larkspur in particular is that it is very palatable to cattle. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. Whereas everything stays away from like the henbane that Tara just talked about. Like they love Larkspur, which is Mm -hmm. ridiculous on like a lot of evolutionary fronts. It doesn't help the Larkspur. It doesn't help the cattle. I know. The cattle and the Larkspur probably didn't evolve together. (laughs) It's probably part of the problem. Yeah. Anyhow, the poison is actually an alkaloid called diterpene. And it affects the musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal, respiratory, and nervous system. So it can result in death. And it frequently looks like muscular or respiratory paralysis, tremors, incoordination, stiffness, staggering, falling, muscle tremors, collapse, bloat, weakness, nervousness, vomiting, salivation. All of those things can be signs of poisoning. The hard part is it's a sign for a whole bunch of other things too. So yeah. essentially when you find out that your animal is poisoned by Larkspur... It's too late. Right. Yeah. And well, frequently poisoning, that's, I mean, there's not a lot of anecdotes to poisoning. No. Yeah. Frequently that's the case. So the heavy salivation is a really good indicator Absolutely, of poisoning yeah. in general. Yeah. So dosages for cattle are 0.5 to 3.5 body weight or percent body weight. So in a thousand pound cow, that's five pounds to 35 pounds. Whereas a sheep is three to 21% body weight. So that's like three and 3.75 pounds to 26 pounds. Yeah. Which you know, sounds like a lot, but for like a cow to get five pounds and a couple bites of something that tastes good to them. Yeah. Not, not that bad. No. And especially if you see how they work their tongue, they can grab so much with one bite. Yeah. 
kind of scary. It really is. Let's move on to false hellbore. This is also a broadleaf native plant. Again, remember that broadleaf part. It'll come handy for knowledge later. This is also a really, really common landscaping plant for lots of greenery. Usually a large erect plant with huge green leaves with conspicuous parallel veins. It's found mostly in the mountains and wetlands. Again, wetlands. This is important for the next part. It resembles skunk cabbage. So if you're somebody, have you ever eaten skunk cabbage? I haven't. It grows in marshy areas as well. Yeah. And it was really big here. Like my father-in-law, he grew up really poor, so he had to eat a lot of skunk cabbage. Yeah. And I guess skunk cabbage can be pretty poisonous until you cook it, kind of like lamb's quarter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it resembles skunk cabbage. You have to be really careful if you're foraging for skunk cabbage. They affect cattle, sheep, and goats, but not horses. Amazing because horses, horses love die to from die. everything. Yeah. I know. This is the one that they're like, yeah, this is fine. It's their like favorite this. pastime. Yeah, it really is. The entire plant is poisonous, particularly the leaves and roots, which most of the plant is leaves. Huge problem right. there. You can't miss it when you see it. Yeah, it's very evident. We have some on the side of the roads here. Yeah, they're in the mountains up here. And like I have an anecdotal story about it, but I'll let you get to that part. The thing about it is it goes dormant in the winter. So in spring, summer, and fall, these are the times you have to look out for it. Like right now is a huge time for it to be yeah. seen. Especially because a lot of other stuff is drying up. Yeah, and this is pretty green right now. Mm -hmm. The poison for this is an alkaloid. It affects the gastrointestinal, nervous, and reproductive systems. This can cause birth defects, abortion, coma, convulsions, irregular heartbeat, prostration, difficult respiration, vomiting, excessive salivation, weakness, and irregular gait. There is no data for cattle or horses, but for sheep and goats, the toxicity threshold is 6 to 12 ounces. This is for the leaves in particular. The roots are five to ten times more concentrated in alkaloids, but not there's not been a specific amount of root intake that's been classified for toxicity. Yeah. So the, I mean, that's funny. It's not funny. But this is like, you guys should look up a picture of it because it's a really pretty cool looking plant, which is, is probably why people use it in landscaping. But so we like live in the mountain west, right? Which is like a lot of pine trees and yeah. the forest floor can be kind of barren sometimes. And then you see like these big, beautiful plants and you want to gravitate over towards them. It's like, yeah. how cool, right? So this summer I found them and I was like, oh my gosh, these are beautiful. Like right. these have to be something cool, right? Surely they're medicinal. Which, Thank God I have two rules. Always bring your book, your identifying book. Right. And don't touch it until you know what it is. Yeah. Like physically do not touch it, you know? And thank goodness I didn't. Not that it probably would have done anything massive through my skin, but I'm pregnant, right? Right. And like I look it up in the book and the book's like, can cause abortions. So <laughs> like, you're like, no. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I backed away slowly. <laughs> he um, didn't but turn. That's you held your hands up and you're like, I not know. today. Don't come near me. Don't come at me, bro. I mean right. no harm. <laughs> Seriously. If the plant is acting aggressive, <laughs> walk away slowly. Anyways, so yeah, that's how I met that plant. So lupine is our next one. It's also a native broadleaf plant. And you guessed it, popular landscaping plant. Super popular. Actually, funny story. What I used for the kids' homeschool last year, they mm -hmm. had this book. I think I told you about it because I was yeah. so mad. It's this old lady went and spread seeds around and it was yes. all lupine seeds. Yes. All in it's a cartoon book, so like why yeah. am I getting mad about it? But I was like, <laughs> kids, lupine will kill animals and humans. Let's yeah. not do that. It's a bad idea. Yeah. That was my takeaway from this book. Right. Right. I'm sure. I'm sure it was about spreading joy. Yeah. And you're it was. Like, Making it Shame. beautiful everywhere. 
Like right. I would be hella pissed if somebody threw lupine seeds in my pasture. I'd lose my mind. Yeah. When you see a picture of them, if you Google lupine, you're going to get a picture of a quaint little English garden. So cute. It's like those really tall, colorful plants that are in every English garden ever imagined. Like lots of flowers on them. Tons of flowers, right? So that's, I mean, that's what the, that's what it looks like in the landscaping place. But I guarantee you look up a picture and you're like, oh, oh, I've seen that before. So there, there's actually the interesting thing about lupines, right? So like they can kill you or they can be used in your landscaping. And also, there's varieties of lupines that have been bred for human consumption. Yeah, which is crazy to me. The seeds. And I guess it's like a pretty popular um, hipster food. There's like a better, uh, like a like a superfood. <laughs> there's a better word for that. Hipster All the food. hipsters love them. You love lupine. Love lupine. I guess the key is, is to boil the seeds beforehand. But anyhow, it's only certain varieties don't go harvest lupines. And St. Yeah. Mates told me to do this. Don't die today. <laughs> right. Uh, the, pra- the practice of eating them actually goes way, 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 way back, like found in Egyptian tombs sort of way back. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. But the lupine, yeah, more popular in the Mediterranean area, obviously, and the varieties that grow there. But the lupine we're going to talk about is the one native to North America that's problematic for livestock. So that's lupinus SPP is like frequently how you'll see it yeah. it's, mentioned. When they have, I don't know if it's a thing everywhere, but our DNRC has like posters and lupine will be on there and it's yeah. always lupine S, lupinus SPP yeah. on there. Yeah, that's the sign or the Latin name. So they have palmately com- compound leaves, which radiate from a central point. And then they, when in flower, they have these beautiful tall cone-like purple flowers um, that you'll see. They kind of, the, color and variation vary by species but again if you see a purple flower be wary it's either right. larkspur or lupine yeah if you're out walking around so they are found in about every terrain as well and not every single species of lupine are toxic necessarily but there's enough of them that it's just best to be cautious and avoid them all especially when it comes to your animals so they affect cattle and sheep and rarely goats and they're suspected to affect horses and i don't know if that's just like there hasn't been enough cases reported or right. confirmed cases or what but the entire plant is poisonous but it is most concentrated in the seeds and the younger plants are definitely more toxic than the mature plants. Right. Again, though, this is another one that's really a problem when it gets put up into hay. So the poison involved is an alkaloid, specifically a mycotoxin, which there's a lot of those. You could do a whole episode on mycotoxins. Yeah. So it affects the musculoskeletal, nervous, hepatic, reproductive, and respiratory systems, and also causes death. Just a side so, effect. Just, just, just a, a little a one. Dose, side dish of death. Yeah. So symptoms are respiratory failure, coma, birth defects, and this is what in, this in cows is, in particular. Yeah, huge in calves. Yeah, it's called the crooked calf syndrome, um, but you'll get crooked legs and cleft palates and things like that. So abortion, convulsions, incoordination, difficult breathing, muscle twitching, loss of muscle control, lethargy, head pressing, which like I see these memes out there all the time. Have you seen like the meme of like the cow pushing its head Against a post. Flat against a post. Yeah. People will be like, you know, it's Monday when. I'm like, yeah, that cow's neurologic. Yeah. If you ever see an animal pushing their face straight into something, like the front of their face, that's not cute. That's a very common neurological symptom that most people don't know. If you see that, do not, like if they're in a stall in a pen, do not go in there with them. Because a neurological animal doesn't have control over their body anymore. They can fall on you at any moment. Yeah. Anyways, head pressing. It always just like scary. Makes me nervous when I see these cute little memes. I'm like, 
No. Yeah, that cow has a death sentence, so mm-hmm. it's not that funny. <laughs> Anyways, depression, nervousness, excessive salivation, and a dry coat. Most commonly, this crooked calf syndrome that I mentioned, it's caused by mamas grazing certain lupines, which is so interesting, during the first or late first trimester to early second trimester. So yeah. 40th to 100th days of gestation, which mm-hmm. I just find interesting. It's so specific. There's so much growth that goes on during those times, though. It's like a really big... Yeah. developmental important time. Yeah. And there's certain stages at which like different placental fluids mix. And then after that stage, it stops. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it's just interesting how, A, how the whole gestation process works and B, that like we figured out exactly what days lupine's a problem. Yeah. Right. Crazy. So its toxicity threshold is only 0.1 to 1.5% body weight in cattle and sheep. So that's one pound. So small. That's really, really small. 0.1 pounds for sheep. Crazy. Like if the sheep licks it. (laughs) If they look at it wrong, man. Yeah, just so tiny. So when talking about doses, it is important to say that the toxicity levels vary between species, between time of the year, and all of that. But it's also important to note that the smaller doses poison cattle more so. Like you can have smaller percentages in a cow daily if... But it's still a problem if they eat it three to seven days. That was a lot that I messed up on (laughs) saying, right? So if a cow eats lupine at less than toxic doses for three to seven days in a row, those doses just build up and accumulate over the three to three days. And so now it's a problem. Right. So they could eat one leaf one day, one leaf the next, and one leaf. And one leaf wouldn't bother them, but three leaves would, right? Like that's an example. That was, I had a hard time explaining that simple concept. So lupine poisoning can also be reduced by keeping hungry animals away from lupine in the early stages of growth and late summer when the plant contains the seeds because that's the most toxic part. Now we're going to move on to hemlock. This is also known as poison hemlock. There's different varieties of hemlock, like water hemlock. We're not talking about that today. Just poison hemlock. It's also called carrot fern or poison parsley. So the difference between water hemlock and poison hemlock is that they have a different chemical makeup. True hemlock uses the toxin piperidine alkaloids, specifically conine, which causes muscle paralysis that leads to respiratory arrest. Hemlock is known for having like hollow stems and purple spots or streaks on its stems, along with no hairs on the stems. That's really, really important when you're trying to differentiate it between queen's and lace and hemlock because queen's and lace and lace will have hairs on the stalks yeah the leaves resemble like a fern and again the entire plant smells like rat urine so it's pretty common for a lot of these nasty plants to smell awful but some of them do smell good so you really have to not go off of that right but hemlock is known for being stinky it's commonly mixed up between Queen's Anne's lace, like I mentioned, but once you see Queen's Anne's lace against hemlock, it's very, very evident which is which. Yeah. Hemlock has white flowers that produce numerous umbrella-shaped clusters. It's a broadleaf invasive plant, super invasive, very, very poisonous in all livestock species. This is the entire plant. The entire plant is very poisonous. The seeds are especially concentrated when they're immature. The plant also remains toxic when dried. This is one of the most known plants for its toxic properties. It was used to execute criminals from 323 to 31 BC. So it was quite often used to kill people. So crazy. There's a huge rich history of hemlock being used for suicides, for executions, for poisons. Like there was a whole boom of 
this time when everyone poisons somebody. Like they would invite you over for mm-hmm. dinner just to kill you. Yeah, there's like, I mean, there's a ton of like old timey cr- true crime stories. About hemlock. About, yeah. Well, yeah. And about poisons in general. Yeah. It's like very popular to do. Right. It's not very common now because it's really, really easy to tell when somebody has been ingesting something. Like yeah. toxicology now has come so far. Right. Whereas before you could get away with it. Right. Yeah. They thought you had ghosts in your blood and you just died from that. So (laughs) blood ghosts, blood ghosts. The tricky thing is that hemlock is in the same family as carrots, parsley, and fennel. So time and time again, it has been confused for those things. And so many people have died by ingesting hemlock, thinking it's something else. So this is really cool to me. I got this out of the book of plants that kill. Quail that eat hemlock seeds can in turn poison humans who then consume the quail, causing secondary poison of the toxin conine. Do not eat the quail. And it's only a specific time, and this happened in the Mediterranean era, like area, era. (laughs) Back when the Mediterranean was around. (laughs) Area. That is like so crazy though. Yeah. You know, when you're foraging, this is like a semi-related topic when you're foraging like when you pick a plant you should look around and make sure there's not other certain poisonous plants Mm -hmm. because they can leach right Right. so like the fact that the birds are leaching it's crazy (laughs) the birds are leaching poison into you nuts the symptoms of poison by hemlock includes dilated pupils trembling paralysis salivating coma and even death this is a really really fast and a really really bad one generally animals will not graze hemlock like i said it's very very stinky It's not palatable, and if they do, they will have symptoms such as loss of coordination, dilated pupils, weak heartbeat, respiratory failure, and just die. Not good. I'll take it. Cattle can consume up to 0.4% and be okay. So this is roughly about four pounds if you're considering like a 1,000-pound animal, Mm -hmm. but abortions can happen at way lower rates. All right, so everybody's everybody's scared now. Right. I'm never letting my cow graze ever again. No, they're dry lotted forever. And you're not getting hay either. Never. Because, you know, Eat I air, there. cow. Figure air it out, Virgie. Right. Figure it out. You know what? Chicken would gain weight <laughs> if, if I told were, chicken yeah. to eat air. The, the <laughs> She'd be like, okay. Part. She's like, okay. Right. Cool. I'm good. Chicken would say. <laughs> um So what do you do now, right? So there's a couple different options for controlling poisonous plants. So obviously one option is to eliminate the plant, right? So you can do this. You can spray them, especially the broadleafs. There's like a gazillion different broadleaf sprays out there. Certain herbicides like 2,4-D, which is probably the like most Most common common. broadleaf. It's Mm -hmm. like Roundup, right? For example, they, they do, those sprays can concentrate the sugars in the plant after spraying it, which can all of a sudden turn a non-desirable plant into candy. Interesting. For cows. Right. So, um, or just any livestock in general. So it can make the plant way more palatable to the animals. And even if you're using, like 2,4-D, for example, concentrates the sugars, but some salt-based sprays too, that's that's problematic for the same reason. Yeah. So it's just good practice to keep your animals off the land that's been sprayed for at least two weeks. Right. To let that all dissipate and go by the wayside. Mm-hmm. If you're not about spraying, like I get it, you can also dig them up to remove them. Right. For somebody with like five acres that's probably doable i've done it before with a yeah. uh, hound's tongue but yeah. the problem is some of these plants you'll break off the tops and yeah. you still have the bottom roots and they thrive they're like yes especially hound's tongue and henbane yes yeah 
We'll they're... have to do Hound's Tongue in the next one because that I one's know. an interesting one too. It really is. Yeah, and we we do a combination here. I mean, it's like just too much lands to not spray. And some you can of it. instead of broad spraying, you can spot spray. So you're just yeah. spraying the actual invasive plant that you don't want. That's that's what we do. Yeah, but like I I get them. I get henbane right next to my greenhouse. Yeah. And I will not spray. You are no. not getting my tomatoes. So, no. anyways, you can use a mix. Do whatever you're comfortable with. My favorite thing, which is I, I we accidentally did this with the henbane, is to use multi-species a multi-species grazing pattern yeah. to eradicate or control them. It's really which smart. Is so flipping cool. So our horse pasture and our farmyard pasture, which is like a whole conglomerate of different animals, they're just separated by a fence, but it's all the same land that was not replanted, right? It was right. just the tilled land that we had to put the animals somewhere. Horse pasture, like at least a couple henbane every square foot. Mm-hmm. Farm animal pasture, there wasn't a single henbane in there, period. <laughs> and it, I think it's because it, the goats were going through and nibbling them down to the ground before right. they came up. So anyhow, another example of this is like sheep need four times the dosage of larkspur that cows do. Therefore, like sheep larkspur poisoning is not very common at all. So a lot of people let the sheep out first right and then the cows get to go out later so great these are all awesome if you have a relatively small plot of land that you can handle but what if your land's huge and you can't possibly get them all or what if you graze on somebody else's land that you can't just go like spray the whole thing or if it's like national forests and i don't want you right. digging up plants or what yeah. have you so developing a good grazing system is like the best way so if you can't get rid of them you're going to have to just work at limiting the chances of poisoning so there's a couple things here. The two biggest are nutrition and water. So nutrition, you need to keep your animals full. They venture into things that they shouldn't only when they're hungry. Mm-hmm. So like animals will eat henbane even though they don't want to if they're starving. Right. right. And then the same goes for minerals too. Like if you don't have minerals out and they're not satisfying their needs, they'll collect that somewhere else that you maybe don't want them to collect. Water is important as well. So keeping fresh water available in large amounts and try your best to keep the water areas clear of poisonous plants. And this is because when like a thirsty animal grazes way less discriminately than an animal who's not thirsty, which I didn't know that, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. Once you have those two handled, you your next task is to understand the specific plants you're working with. So say you have a plant that's specifically poisonous when in flower in the spring, then just monitor your land and don't graze that area until the plant drops its flowers. So the risk is still there because you haven't removed the plant, right? Right. But you've done your part to minimize it um, the best you can. So a final note on this like controlling it part is that animals who aren't familiar with grazing, which there's like, it sounds sad, there's a ton out there. Um, Ones who have only been on dry lot or um, say new to you cows, when they get to pasture, they will eat literally anything. Like right. they're just so excited to be out. They have no common sense. Their moms never showed them to stay away from things. Mm-hmm. Um, they've never seen a larkspur. They've never seen grass. You know, they're just going to go for it. Right. So when you have animals like that, you want to be super slow and careful in your introduction to grazing as to where you introduce them to that so that they're only exposed to positive things until they chill out. Right. <laughs> yes. Anyways, that wraps up our spooky sewed. Yes, that was super fun one to research because super fun. I love poisonous plants. Yeah, you're They're obsessed. Fun. You have a shirt. I do. I'm wearing it right now. Pick your poison. So if you have any suggestions for us, 
plants that are poisonous or you want to add what's in your area, let us know at milkmaidspodcast at gmail.com. Boom, baby. That's our episode. Happy milking. Happy milking. Bye.